Ah, madame, replied the doctor, I have come, I have some pulling stories in my collection, but each one has its proper hour in a conversation. You know the pretty dress recorded by Chaffert, and said to George, Between you, Sally, and the present moment, lie ten bottles of pain, but it is two in the morning, a story Rosetta has prepared us, said the mistress of the house. Tell us, monsieur, Bunkham was a cry on each side. The obliging doctor bowed, and silence reigned. And about a hundred paces from Benadrome, on the banks of Law, said he, stands an old brown house, crowned with very high roofs, and so completely isolated there is nothing near it, not even a vibrant tannery or a squalid tavern. Such as is commonly seen outside small towns, in front of this, this house is a garden, down to the river, where the box shrubs, formerly clipped close to the edge of the walks, now straggle at their own will. A few windows, rooted in the stream, have grown up quickly, like an enclosing fence, and half hid the house. A wild plants which called weeds have clothed a bank with their beautiful luxuriance. The fruit trees, neglected over the, for these ten years past, no longer bear fruit. Their suckers have formed a thicket. The inspailers are like a corpse. A path of gravel are overgrown with purslane, but to be accurate, there is no trace of a path. Looking down from the hilltop, on which clung the ruins of the old castle, the Dukes of Venedon, the only spot of whence that I can see into this enclosure, we think that at end difficult now to determine. This spot of earth must have been the joy some whole country gentlemen devoted to the roses and tulips, in a word, to the whole culture, but above all, lover of choice fruit. An arbiter is visible, or rather, the wreck of an arbiter. Under it, the table still stands, not entirely destroyed by time. At the aspect of its garden, there is no more. The neglect enjoys peaceful life. The prophecies may be provided to divide the history of a worthy tradesman, when we read the epitaph of Oni's tomb, to complete its mournful and tender impressions. Where cease the soul on one of the walls, there is a Sunder or grace this homely Christian motto, Artaman Cogito. The roof of the house is dreadfully dilapidated. The outside shutters are always closed. The balconies are hung with swallows' nests. The doors are just ever shut. Straggling glasses have outlined flagstones. On the steps are green. The ironwork is rusty. Moon, sun, winter, summer. And snow have eaten into wood, walked the boards, peeled off the paint. The dreary silence is broken only by birds and cats, polecats and rats and mice, free to scamper around and fight and eat each other. An invisible hand has written all over. Mystery is promptly by curiosity. You go to look at this house from the street, you see a large gate with a round arched top, and the children made there many holes in it. I learned over later that this door had been blocked for ten years. 
Those are irregular beaches. You see the side towards the courtyard, a perfect harmony with the side towards the garden. The same ruin prevails, tufts of weeds outline the paving stones. The walls are scored by enormous cracks. A blackened coping is laced with a thousand fassoons of pedantry. The stone steps are disjointed. The bell cord is rotten. A gutter sprouts broken. What fire from heaven could have fallen here? There. By what degree of salt was sown on this dwelling? Has God been mocked here? Or was France betrayed? These are the questions we ask ourselves. Raptors call over it, but give no reply. This empty, deserted house is a vast enigma, which the answer is none, known to none. It is a little-known domain, held in fief, and known as La Grangerie de Brie-Texist. During my stay at Venedon, where his planes had left me in charge of a rich patient, the sight of this strange dwelling became one of my keenest pleasures. Was it not far better than a ruin? Certain memories of a disputable emphasis attached themselves to a ruin. This house of standing, though being slowly destroyed by avenging hand, continued a secret, alone revealed a thought. At the very least, it testified to Capitalists. More than once in the evening, I boarded the hedge, round wall which surrounded enclosed. I braved the scratches. I got into this owner's garden, this plot which no longer private or public. I lingered there for hours, gazing at the disorder. I would not, as the price of the story, in which this strange scene, no doubt, was due, have asked a single question of any gossipy nature. On that spot I wove delightful romances and abandoned in myself, dimpled with debaucheries, melancholy, which enchanted me. If I had known the reason, perhaps more commonplace, of this glit, I have lost unwritten poetry which intoxicated me. To me, this refuge represented the most various phases of human life, the shadow by misfortune, sometimes the peace of the graveyard without the dead, who speak the language of epitaphs. One day I saw in the house of Lepus, another house of Adjutee, but all above all I found the provincial life, the contemplative ideas, and hourglass existence. I, I often wept there. I never laughed. More than once I felt involuntary terrors as I heard overhead a dull hum the wings of some hurrying wood pigeon. The earth is dank. You must be what on watch for lizards, vipers and frogs, wandering about the wild freedom of nature. Above all, you must have no fear of cold, for in a few moments you feel an icy cloak settled on your shoulders, like a commodore's hand on Don Giovanni's neck. One evening I felt a shudder. A wind was turned to an old rusty weathercock. The creaking sounded like a cry from a house at the very moment when I was finishing a gloomy drama to account for this momental or embodiment moment of woe. I returned to my inn, lost in gloomy thoughts. When I suffered, the hostess came into my room with an air of mystery and said, Monsieur, here is a Monsieur Ragonette. Who is Monsieur Magragnet? What, sir? Did you not know Monsieur Ragonette? 
Well, of that sort, says she, leaving the room. On a, on a sudden, I saw the man appear, tall, slim, dressed in a black hat in hand, who came in like a ram, ready to butt his boat, showing a receding forehead, a small pointed head, a colourless face and hue of, gra- of a glass of dirty water. You have taken him the usher, the stranger wore an old coat which wore at the seams, but it had a diamond in his shirt, frill, and had gold rings in his ear. Monsieur, said I, whom have I the honour of addressing? He took a chair, placed himself in front of my fire, put his hat on the table, and answered with more. He rubbed his hands. Dear me, it is very cold, monsieur. I miss monsieur Mercanot. I was encouraging myself by saying to myself, I, 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 can seek. I am, he went on, notably at Venadon. I'm delighted to hear it, Mr. I exclaimed, but I'm not in a position to make a will for reasons best known to myself. One moment, said he, holding up his hands as though to gain silence. Allow me, Mr. Allow me. I informed that you sometimes go for a walk in the garden, the Grande Batisci. Yes, Monsieur. Well, a moment, said, repeating, said he, repeating his gesture. This that conducive uh, Mr. Meaver, Monsieur, an executor upon the wheel, the late compressed demerit. I came in her name to beg you to discontinue the practice. One moment, I am not a Turk. I do not wish to make a crime of it. And besides, you are free to be ignorant of sentences which couple me, compel me to have a finest mansion. Compel me to leave them for his mansion, Vendrome to fall into ruin. Nevertheless, monsieur, you must be a man of education. You should know that laws forbid, under heavy penalties, many, many trespass of an closed property. A hedge is still a wall, but a state in which the place is left may be an excuse for your courtesy. But on my part, I should be quite content to make you free to come and go in the house, but being bound to respect the will. The testatex. I am honour. Have honour, Monsieur, to beg that you go into the garden no more. I myself, Monsieur, since we always read, have never set foot of the house. Which, as I said, the horror of misinforming you is partly state the late Madame de Merit. We have nothing there but the variety, a number of doors and windows of processor taxes. I have to pay annually out of my funds left for that purpose by the late Madame de Merit. Oh, my dearest sir, her wheel made a great commotion in the town. The good man passed to blow his nose. I respect his vulnerability perfectly, perfectly understanding that the administration of Madame de Merit's estate had been the most important part of the end of his life, his reputation, his glory, his restoration. I was forced to bid myself to my beautiful revenues and romances. I was a direct learning the truth for an honorary of an official authority. Monsieur, said I, would it be in deceit if I asked you the reasons for such eccentricity at these words of expression, which revealed all the pleasure which men shall have accustomed to ride a hobby? I overspread the lawyer's convenience. He pulled up the collar of his shirt with an air. We took out his snuff box, opened it, and ordered me, offered me pinch to my refusing. He took a great large one. He was happy. A man who has no hobbies does not know all the good he got we get out of life. 
A hobby is a happy medium between depression and monomania. At this point, I understand the bold bearing of Sinine's charming passion, and had a perfect idea, delight, which put my uncle Toby encouraged by Trim bestowed his hobby horse. Monsieur, said Monsieur Margot, I am the head class of Monsieur Vergon's office in Paris, a first-rate house which which you may have ever mentioned. No, I uh, an unfortunate bankruptcy made it famous, not for having money enough to purchase a practice in Paris, a price of which were, were run up in 1816. I came here and brought my procedures business. I had relations vendor, among others, a wealthy aunt who allowed me to marry her daughter. Monsieur, he went on his little poles three months ago. They had been licensed to by the keeper of the seals. One evening, as I had been going to bed, it was before my age, I set for by Madame de Gobaudet de Merit, the Chateau of Merit, a maid, a good girl, who said is now a servant in his inn, was waiting at my door with Countess's own carriage. Oh, one moment, I ought to tell you that Monsieur de Comte Merit had gone to Paris to die two months before I came here. He came, he came to Miss Wren, flinging himself into every kind of dispensation. You understand? On the day he left, Madame de Clarcosier was quitted La Grande Bessiste and dismounted it. Some people say, even say that she had burnt all the furniture, the hangings, in short, all the chantelles, furniture, whatever used in the furnishing premise, and now let by the said M. Dear, what am I saying? I beg your pardon. I thought I was dictating a lease. In short, that she burnt everything in the meadow at Merritt. Oh, you, you've seen Miss Merritt, monsieur? He said, no, he said, answer himself. Oh, it is a very fine place. For about three months previously, he went on with a jerk of head. The Count the Countess had lived in a very eccentric way. They admitted no visitors. Madame lived on the ground floor, monsieur on the first floor. The Countess had left alone, she never seen expecting at church. So quickly at home at Chateau, she refused to see friends, whether gentlemen or ladies, who went to call on her. She was already very much uh, altered when she left La Grande Bestie to go to Merit. Did that lady, dear lady, I say dear lady, for it was a la- she who gave me this diamond. I understand, I indeed saw her. But once, that kind lady was very ill, and she, no doubt, given no hope, had died without choosing to send for a doctor. Indeed, some of our ladies fancied that she was not quite right in the head. Well, Sir Microsy was strangely excited by hearing that Madame de Maret had, no need, had need of my services, nor was I only person who took an interest in the affair. The very night, though, for her, it was already late. All the town knew that I was going to Marriott. A waiting lady woman replied but vaguely to the questions I asked her on the way. Nevertheless, she told me that her mistress had received the sacrament in the course of the day at the hands of the cure of Marriott, and seemed unlikely to live for the night. If it was about eleven when I reached the chateau, I went up the great staircase after crossing some large loft dark room, lofty dark rooms, that are bitterly cold and damp, 
I reached the state bedroom where the countess lay. From the rumours currently concerning this lady, Monsieur, I would never end. If I were to repeat all the tales that were told about her, I had imagined uh, a project. The but imagine then when I was great difficulty seeing her in a great bed where she was lying. To be sure, to like this enormous form, with the old lady having courses, to fill fit with dust and merely to see it was enough up to make up you sneeze and we were only in the old arrogant lamp. Oh, but you have been to merit? Well, the bed is one of the old, my old beds with a high tester hung with a feather flowered cheese. A small table stood by the door bed, which I saw an invitation of Christ, which, by the way, I bought my wife and one of the lamp. There was also a dark, deep armchair of a confidential maid and two small chairs. There's no fire. They're all furniture. Not enough to fill ten lines in inventory. Oh, my dear sir, I have, if you've seen as I saw, a vast room papered with hung or brown, you would have felt yourself transported to see the romance as I see. Nay, more, funeral he had left in his hand, with a theatrical lester of balls. By dint of seeking as I had approached the bed, at least at last I saw Madame de Merit under the glimmer of the lamp, which fell on pillows, her face as yellow as wax, as narrow as two folded hands, as countess as lace clap, showing her abundant hair, but as white as a linen thread. She was sitting up in bed, and seemed to keep upright with great difficulty, her large black eyes dimmed by fever, no doubt, half-dead already, hardly moved the bony arch of her eyebrows. There, he added, pointing to his own brow, her whole head was clammy, her fessless hands were all like bones covered with soft skin, and veins and muscles were perfectly visible. She must have been very handsome, but at that moment I was startled into an undescribable emotion at the sight. Never, never, said those who wrapped her in a shroud, had any living creature been so emancipated and lived. In short, it was awful to behold. Sickness so consumed at a woman, you know more than a phantom. Her lips were pale, violent, seemed to me not to move when she spoke to me. Through my possession was familiarized me with such spectacles by calling me not infrequently by bedside was I recalled the last wishes. I confessed his families in tears and in annoying agonies I had seen was nothing in comparison with this lonely and silent woman in this vast chateau. I learned, heard not the least sound. I did not perceive the movement which the sufferers breathing ought to have given the sheets I covered her. I stood motionless, absorbed in looking at her with a sort of stupor. In fancy, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm there still. At least she, her last, her brown, large eyes moved, and she returned to raise her right hand, felt it but he fell back in the bed. She uttered these words, which came like a breath. Her voice was lo- no lo- long- longer a voice. I have waited for you, for your great impatience, a bright flush of her cheeks. It was great effort to, to, her to speak. Madame again, she sighed at me, be silent. At that moment, the old gravekeeper rose and said to her, 
in my ear. Do not speak, Madame de Cobas. It is not a state to bear, as tight as nights. I may, what you may say, night might agitate, agitate her. I sat down a few instants after. Madame de Merritt collected all oh, my strength to move her right hand, slipped it but in difficulty over the bolster. She then paused a moment. She had the last effort to withdraw her hand, and then she rolled out of Still paper drops of perspiration, rolled from around. I placed my will in your hands. Oh, God, oh, that was all. She clutched the crucifix, laying it on the bed, lifted it hastily to her lips and died. The freshness of her eyes still made me shudder. As I think of it, she must have suffered much. There was no joy in her last glance. It remained stamped on, my dead, on her dead eyes. I brought myself the will. Brought away the will. When it was opened, I found that Madame de Merritt appointed me the executor. She left the whole of her property to the hospital, Benedum, excepting a few legacies, but they were instructions relating to Malacca, Grandier Bachitz. She ordered me to leave the place for fifty years, counting from the day of death and the state in which it might be the de- death time of death, forbidding any other, uh, uh, anyone, however he might be, to enter the apartments for preventing any repairs, whatever, and ever setting a salary to pay a watchman. It was helpful to secure the absolute fulfilment of redemptions. At the expiration of that term, it will be the test and tax that duly carried out the houses that have come property by to my heirs. For then, as you know, the oratory cannot give a request. Otherwise, the grand greatest reverts to the heirs' law on the condition of fulfilling certain decisions set forth in the consul to the will, which is not to be opened till the expiration of the said term of fifty years, be not been disputed so, and without finishing the sentence, large notary looked at him when I eager their triumph. I made him, it, I made him quite happy by offering my congratulations, Mister. I, I said in conclusion, you have vividly impressed me. What I fancy, the dying woman, whiter than uh, uh, her sheets, her glistening eyes frighten me. I shall dream of her tonight. But you must have formed some idea as, instru- as the, at the instructions contained. The enormous will, monsieur, said I, with comical resistance. I never allow myself to criticise conduct of a person who honours me, a gift of a diamond. Have I soon loosened the tongue of the discreet notary of Vendorm, accumulated to us, and not without long digresses, opinions of deep politicians, both sexes whose judgments were law, Vendorm? But these opinions are so contrary to diffuse. I was not near falling asleep in spite of the interest I felt in this authentic history. An oratory pompous voice and monotonous accent, accustomed no doubt to listen to himself, and to make himself listen to my, my clearness. Well, this fellow townsman, not too much to my curiosity. Happily, he soon went away. Ah, ha, monsieur, said he on the stairs. A good many persons would be glad to live five and fifty years young. But, one moment, laid the first finger on his hand, his most strong, and with a cunning look as much to say, my words are last as, a, as long as that, as long as that, said he, you must not be past sixty now. I closed my door, having been roused with apathy, 
by this last speech, minority from which thought very funny. I sat down in my armchair, my feet on the fire dogs. I lost myself in the romance of a little Redcliffe cliff, constructed on the cathedral base given me by Monsieur Ragout. The doors opened by Madame Woman's curious hand turned on the hinges. I saw my landlady come in, a blutsome, florid dame, perhaps always a good woman, who had missed her calling in life. She is a Fleming, who brought her. Who thought to have seen a light in a picture by Fenez? Well, monsieur, said he, monsieur Organet was no doubt been giving you this place. It is the grande but this. Yes, madame Lippes. And what did he tell you? I read a few words of the creepy story, Mr. Madame Marerit, and each sentence of a hotess uh, put her head forward, looking at me with an indicator's keen scrutiny. A busy, com- happy compromise between us and the instinct of a postcoupe. His shoots as a spy, the cunning of a dealer. My good Madame Lippes, said I, as I end, uh, uh, as I ended, you seem to know more about it, huh? It's not that we have come to, up to me. My word is on this island. I do not swear your eyes as big as secrets. You know, Monsieur de Merit. What sort of man he was, Monsieur de Merit? Well, you see, he was a man you never could see the top of. He was a tall, very good gentleman for pedigree. And who, as we say, he's no head close to his cap, paid for everything down, as never to have difficulties of such idea. Of any one. He was hot tempered, you see, and our ladies liked him very much. Besides, because he's hot tempered, I asked her. Well, maybe, said she, and maybe, suppose, sir, the man had to do something to show for a figurehead before he had would marry Madame de Merit, who, without any reflection on others, was the handsomest of bitches here. In her parts, she had about twenty thousand francs a year. All the town was on a wedding. A wedding. The bride was pretty, a sweet-looking, quite-looking look, gem of a woman. Oh, they had a they were a handsome couple in a day, and uh, they are happy after. Hmm. So far, can be guessed, as you can suppose. We common thought we not half fellow well met with them. Monsieur, Madame Mamet was a kind of woman, very pleasant. I know. I doubt. Sometimes put up with her husband's tantrums, but his fault was rather haughty. He was found on him. We are found of him. After all, it's his place to behave so. Well, a man is born over when you see. Still, you bit must have the same catastrophe of Monsieur and Madame de Marit to party so, party so violently, to pile so violently. I did not say there was no controversy, sir. I know nothing about it. Well, now I'm sure you know. Sure, you know everything. Well, sir, I told you this. You the whole story. When I saw Madame Bergette, you to go up to see you. It struck me that it was good speech to you about Madame Bergette and having to do with La Grande. But this, I put my head to ask you. Advice, sir, seemingly that you are a good man of good judgment and, and capable of being playing good woman like me false. For never did you any wrong. 
and yet I am tormented by constant my conscience. Up to now I have never dared to say a word to people of these parts. Are they old chattermags with tongues like knives? And never till now, sir, have I any traveller who has stayed so long in the inn as you, and whom I tell the history the fifteen thousand francs. My dear Madame Lavaz, I am here. There is anything in your story, nature of comprise me, I said, interrupting the hollow of her words. I have not, I will not hear of all the world. You need to have no fear, she said. You will you'll see. Her ignorance made me suspect that I was not the only person I have ever learned of the community the secret of which I was a sole possessor. But I listened. Monsieur, said she, when the Emperor sent met the Spaniards here, the prisoners war, and others, I required to lodge at the charge of the government at the local Spaniard. Young Spaniard went to the Vendor for parole, we not standing for parole. He had shown himself every day to the sub prefect. He was a Spanish grandee, nothing more than less. He had a name, Oesto, something like Borges de Federo. I wrote his name down in my book. I see if you like, like you. Ah, there was a handsome young fellow for print Spaniard, who, all likely, they say, it was not more than a five foot ten or three in fight, but so well made that he had little hands that he kept so beautifully. Ah, you should have seen him. He had so many brushes in his head on his hands as this woman has on her toilet. He had a thick black hair, a flame in his eyes, a somewhat coppery complexion, and which I admired at the same. He was the finest linen I've seen. Though I had the princess to lodge here, among the Grenoble Bretard, the Red, and the princess, Duchess de Bouquenoise, Madame Bouquenoise, the King of Spain. We did not eat much, but he had some, he was such polite and humble ways, possibly not to him a grudge for that. Oh, I was very fond of him, though he did not say the four words to me a day. It was impossible to have the least way to talk to him. It was spoken to, he would not answer. It's always a mania. They all have it, it would seem. He read his breviary like a priest and went to Mass, and all the services quite regularly. And it were, would he post himself? We find out late this later. Within two yards, Madame de Merit's chapel, as he took the place, the very first day he entered the church. No one imagined there was any purpose of it. Besides, he never raised his nose above his book. Poor little young man, when Monsieur and evening he went for a walk a hill among the ruins of the old castle, it was the only amusement poor man made of him of his little lamb. Murdered him of his late land. They say that Spain is on the hills. One evening, a few days after he went there, he was out very late. I was rather uneasy when I not came in, just on the stroke of midnight, being got used to his whims. He took the key of the door. He never sat up with him. He lived in the house belonging to us in Rogel de Calais. Well then, one of our slave boys told us one evening that, going down to wash the horses in the river, he fancied he'd seen the Spanish grenadier swimming some way off, just like a fish. He then, when he came in, I told him to be careful of the weeds. He smiled, but suddenly so he put us 
as if it shall be seen in the water. At last, monsieur, one day of other morning, we did not find him in his room. He had not come back. By holding through his, by his things, I found a written pad, paper, a written paper in the drawer, his, his drawer, fully pieces of French, fifty pieces of French gold, and some, and the kind they called doubloons, worth about two thousand francs, and a little sealed box, ten thousand francs, worth of diamonds. The boy said the case he should not return if finger left us the money and these diamonds and in, in trust we found matters to thank God for his escape and, and his salvation. At that time I never had my husband ran off in search of him. It was this queer part of the story that he brought back in At last, Monsieur, one day, or rather one morning, he did not find, all, he did not find him in his room. He did not come back, but hunting for his things, I found a written paper in the drawer of his table, with fifty pieces of gold, Spanish gold, a kind they called doubloons, worth about five thousand francs, a little sealed box, ten thousand francs, worth of diamonds. The paper said that in case he should not return, to left us his money, and these diamonds in trust to be found <laughs> 50,000 francs a little silk box 10,000 francs of both a diamond paper said that in case should not return he left us his money and his diamonds in trust of for, for, and to be found masses to Thank God, escaped with his salvation. At that time, I still, I still had my husband, who ran off in search of him. And this queer part of the story, he brought back his Spanish cloths, which had, he had found on the big stone and short the breakway along the riverbed. In the opposite, La Grande Bellegi, my husband went slowly, that no one saw him. After reading the letter, he burnt the clothes, an instance of counterfeit which he asked them by the time I still had my husband he wrote off he ran off in the search of him this is a queer part of the story he brought back the tremendous clothes he found it under this big stone and sort of breakway under the riverbank so oh, uh, nearly opposite La Grande Bellegis. My husband went so early that no one saw him. After reading the letter, he burnt the clothes, and in obedience to Count Frederick's wish, he announced that he had escaped. The sub prefect set out all the conspiracy at his heels, but harpish. He was never caught. Lapis believed the Spaniard had drowned himself. Sir, I, sir, I never did thought so. I believed the contrary. That he had been something to do with business about Madame de Verret. Seeing Rosel told him me that the crucifix of mattress was so fond of that had buried with her was made by ebony and silver. 
Now in the early days of his stay here, Monsieur Fredette had one of those ebony and silver which I saw never saw later. And now, Monsieur, do you say I what that I have need of no remorse but about the Spaniards fifty thousand francs? Are you really not really sh- they are not really and truly mine? Certainly, but you've never tried to be question Rosetta, said I. Ah, to be sure, I, I have, I have, sir. But what is to be done? That girl is like a wall. She knows something, but it's possible to make take her talk. Uh, uh, talk. I've trifling with her for a few minutes. My hostess left me a prey of vague and sensitive faults, to romantic curiosity, religious dread, and none like the deep motion that comes upon us when we go to the dark church at night, discern the feeble lights glittering under its lofty, lofty vault. A dim figure glides across the sweep of the ground. The priest's is audible. We shiver like grande birdies. This is rank grasses. It's shuttered windows. It's rusty ironwork. It's locked doors. It's deserted rooms. Suddenly rose before me in fantastic movingness. I have tried to get into a mysterious dwelling to search out the heart of this soldier's story. But this drama had which killed freed persons. Rosetta came my eyes, most interesting way, being in Venadon. As I studied her, I detected signs in the most fault, despite the disglooming health, a glowed in her dimpled face. That was her soul, some element of boof or hope, her um, man, uh, man, uh, manner suggested a secret, an expression of devout souls, a prey in excess, or not a girl who killed the child. Whoever hear, hears his last cry, nevertheless, it's simple and clumsy in a ways. Vacant smile, nothing criminal in it, would have pronounced her innocent only for seeing the large red and blue checkered handkerchief. A couple of steward bust up into the street lace bullets with a look, a white striped crown. No, said I to myself, I am not quite dependent on without knowing the whole city, La Grande Bridges, to achieve this end. I make love to Rosetta, if it approaches this, if it proves necessary. Rosetta, said I one evening, you are a servant, sir. You are not married, she said and thought a little. Oh, there's a lack of men. I have ever taken a fancy to be miserable. She laughed, replied laughing. She got over her agitation once. For every woman, for the highest lady, the infant in servant inclusive, has a native presence of mine. Yes, your flesh are good-looking enough, never to lack lovers. Now, but tell me, Rosetta, why did you become an inservant on leaving Madame Merritt? Did she leave, not leave you some em- little enmity? Well, yes, sir, but my place is here. It best of all was the town, Madame. This reply was for such as one of judges, for attorneys, called evasive. As the Rosetta seemed to me, held in this romantic affair, the place of a middle square of chessboard, she was the very centre of the interest of the truth. She appeared to me to be tied in a knot of it. She had a case of ordinary love-making. This girl contained the last chapter of romance, and from that moment all my attention was wrapped to Rosetta. My dim and studying the girl reserved in her, as the other woman known whom we make our ruling. Thought a variety of good qualities. She's clean and neat. She's handsome. I might only not say she soon possessed every charm and desire to lend a woman in whatever rank of life. 
A fortnight after the notary's visit, one evening or rather one morning, it's why I was, I said to Rosetta, Come, tell me about all you know about Madame de Merit. Oh, she said, I can tell you, but keep this, this the secret carefully. All right, my child, I will keep all my secrets. That's with a feast on her, which is most oil. It is all the same to you, said she. Or rather, it should be with your, your own. Thereupon she set out, hanged straight, and settled herself to tell the tale, with no doubt of the peculiar attitude of confidence, security necessary, telling of a native best tales are told at a certain hour, just as we are all here at the table. No one ever told a story while standing or feasting. It would produce exactly with Redzella's diffuse eloquence, a whole volume would certainly contain it. Now, at the event of which she gave, we confused account that stands exactly midway between the necessary gossip and that of Madame Lepice, exactly the middle term of three or three sum stands between the first and the third. I have only to relate in a few words, as it may be, I shall therefore be brief. The room at La Grande Bridge, in which Madame Varet slept, on the ground floor, a little cupboard in the wall, with four feet deep, served her hanging addresses in. Three months before the evening in which I had related the events, Madame Lorette had been seriously ailing, to which that her husband had left her to herself in his own bedroom on the first floor. By those, one of those incidents, accidents which it is possible to foresee, came that evening two hours later, and usual from the club, we went to read the papers and told politics within the residence and neighbourhood. His wife supposed him to have come in, to be in bed and asleep. The invasion of France had been subjected to a very animated discussion. The game of billiards and wax at the moment. He had lost forty francs, a number some Verdome, here where everybody had fifty. There were such habits restrained from the bounds of supremacy worth all the praise, and the foundation perhaps a form of true happiness which no parishioner could care for. For some time past, Monsieur de Verret been satisfied to ask Rosetta whether she, his wife was in bed, to the girls replying always in the affirmative. At once he went to his own room with a glowed faith that comes a habit and confidence. But this evening, on coming in, he took in his head to see Madame de Verret tell her about his own luck, perhaps his own fine confusion. During dinner, he had observed his wife was very becoming dressed, he reflected as he came home from the club that his wife was certainly much better and confidence had improved her beauty, discovering as the husband discover everything a little too late. Instead of calling Rosetta, who was in the kitchen a moment watching the cook, the coachman playing a puzzle, playing the clouds, Monsieur de Merritt made his way to his wife's room at the light of the lantern, which he set down at the lowest step of the stairs. His step, easy to recognise, hang, rang out the veil vaulted passage. An instance when she dreamed of and turned the key to enter the man's wife's room, he fancied he'd heard the door shut of the closet which I had spoken. But when he went in, Monsieur Madame Red was alone, standing in front of the fireplace, inspecting her husband, fancied that Rosetta was in the cupboard. Nevertheless, in doubt, ringing his ears like a peal of bells, put him on his guard. He looked at his wife and read his eyes, describable, anxious, and old expression. You are very late, she said she, her voice unusually so clear and sweet, stuck 
him as being slightly husky. Mr. Demerit, the vain reply at this moment. Rosetta came in. There was a big clump of thunderlight. He walked up and down the field room, going from one window to another, a regular pace, his arms folded. Have you had bad news? Are you ill? His wife asked Rick timidly, while Rosetta helped him to undress and made a reply. You can go, Rosetta. Rosalind said Madame Barrett to a maid. I can put in my collie papers myself. She scented disaster, the mere aspect of her husband's face, and wished to be alone with him. As soon as Rosetta Rosalind Lane was gone, uh, supposed to be gone, she lingered a few moments for the passage. Monsieur Le Merit came and found facing the wife, and said coldly, Madame, there's some one in your cupboard. He looked at her husband. Calmly and replied, quite simply, No, monsieur, this, no wrong, monsieur de Merit's heart. Do not, he did not believe it, and yet his wife had never appeared purer, more saintly than she seemed to be at that moment. He rose to go and open the closet door. Madame Moret took his hand, stopped him, looked at him and sadly, and said in a voice of strange emotion, Remember, if you should open the lock, find no one there, everything must be at an end between you and me. Johnny dignity to his wife's attitude filled him with deep esteem for her, and inspired him with one of those resolves which need only a grander stage to become immoral. No, Josephine, he said, I did not open it. In either event, we should part be parted forever. Listen, I know all the purity of your soul. I know you lead a saintly life, and do not commit a deadly sin to save your life. At these words, Madame de Rette, looked at her husband behind the stair. See, there is your crucifix, he went on. Swear to me before God, there's no one in there. I will believe you, and I shall never open the door. My sooner took up the crucifix and said, I swear. Louder, said the husband, repeat. I swear before God, and there's nobody in that closet. You repeated the words without flinching. Then that will do, Monsieur Merritt, said Monsieur de Merritt coldly. After a moment's silence, you have a fine place of work, which I should, which I saw before. They were earning the crucifix only, and silver very artistically wrought. I found it in Denver's last year, when the troop of Spanish prisoners came through Vendome. He bought it of a Spanish monk, indeed, said Madame. He said to Merit, hanging the crucifix on his nail, he rang to the bell. We had to wait for Rosalind. Rosalind, Monsieur de Merit, went forward quickly to meet her, led her into the bay of the window that looked at the garden, and said to an undertone, I know that Grenolot wants to marry. The poverty alone prevents you setting up house, and you told him you're not to be his wife, but you found this means to become a master mansion. Mason, well, go and fetch him. Tell him to go, go come in his trails and tools. Contrived to wait no one in his house but himself. He's a world be beyond oh, your wishes. Above all, go without saying a word. Or else, said he, found. Roselle, Rosetta, Roselle, was going, and she called back her back. Here, take what I catch, said he. Jane, Monsieur de Merit called in a voice of thunder under the passage. Jean, with both coachman and confidential servant, left. Cars and cane. Go to bed, all of you, said Miss Master, begging him to come close. And my gentleman said, added a whisper, 
when they're all asleep, asleep, mind, asleep, don't we understand? Come down and tell me. Monsieur Merrick would never lose sight of his wife while telling, giving his orders. Quietly he came back to her bedside, fireside, again to tell her the details of the story of Bidia's discussion in the club. When Rosella, Rosaline, Returned to, she found Monsieur and Madame de Merritt conversing amiably. Not long before this, Madame de Merritt, Monsieur Merritt, had new ceilings made, all the reception rooms on the ground floor, and plastered very scarce of red at all. Prices hard for the cost of the carriage. The gentleman, therefore, had a considerable quantity to deliver to him, knowing that he would always find purchases of what he might be left. He hint to this certain sacrifice. His pains carried out. Glenmont is here, said Rosella, in a whisper. Tell him to come in, said the master aloud. Madame de Merritt turned paler than when she saw the mason. Glenmont flopped, said the husband. Go fetch bricks from the coachers. Bring enough to warm up the door to the cupboard. You can call the plaster and his left for the cement. Then dragging Rosella, a workman closer. Listen, Glenmont, said he, a low voice. You will sleep here in the night tonight. But remember, tomorrow you shall have a parcel to take you abroad to a place I tell you of. You, I will give you six thousand francs for your journey. You must live in the town for ten years. If you find you not like it, you may settle in another. You must be in the same country. Go for Paris and wait till I join you. I will give you an agreement of six thousand francs. Where? More to be paid to you in return, provided you have carried out conditions of the bargain. For what price you are, keep perfect silence so as to what you have to do this night. To to you, Rosella, a secure ten thousand francs, which will not be paid to you until your wedding day. A condition of your marrying Gulliflot. But to get married, you must hold your tongue. If no, it if no, not no wedding gift. Rosella <laughs> said for Madame de Merritt, Come brush my hair. My husband walked quietly walked husband quietly walked up down the room, keeping an eye on the door on the mason, his wife, without any insulting display of suspicion. Gunnarfoot would not help making some noise. Madame de Merritt seized a moment. When he was unloading some bricks, when her husband was at the other end of the room to save us a hunted child, I'll give you a thousand francs a year, but only to tell Gullinot to leave a crack at the bottom. When she added a loud, quite loud, coldly, You had better help him. Monsieur and Madame and Monsieur and Madame Lorette were silent all the time while Gullinot was pulling up the wall. His silence was intentional on her husband's part. He did not wish to give his wife the opportunity. Seeing anything of double meaning on Madame de Merritt's side, it's pride of pretence. But when the wall was half built up by the cunning mason, took advantage of his master's back being turned to break some part of the panel, two panels at the top of the door, with blow his pick. By this, Madame de Merritt's understood that Rosella had spoken to Gunnarfot. The all three men now saw the face a dark, gloomy-looking man with black hair and flaming eyes. Before her husband turned around again, the poor woman had nodded to the stranger, whom the signal was meant to convey hope. A four o'clock in the, at the day was dawning. It was about the mouth, month of September. The work was done. The mason was 
placing charge of Jean. Monsieur de Merritt slept in my room. Next morning when he got up, he saw, with quite a great carefulness, by the way I must go to Marie for the passport. He went on to put on his hat and took three or three to steps towards the door, paused and took the crucifix. His wife was trembling with joy. We can still go to the villains, thought she. As soon as he has left, Madame Marie rang Marizella, and then they had a terrible voice. She cried, The pick, bring me the pick and set to work. I saw how Gavert did it yesterday. We shall have time to make a gap and build up again. In an instant, Rosella had brought her mistress a salt lever. She, in a very month of no words, gave an idea, set to work to demolish the wall. You'd already got a few bricks. When turning a steel stronger blow than before, she saw behind her Monsieur, 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 Monsieur de Marit. She fainted away. Lay Madame on her head. He said coldly, Phil, seeing what you certainly happened in his absence, he laid his trap for his wife. He had written to Marie and sent for Denver. The juror arrived just as the disorder in the room had been repaired. Demer, said Madame de Merit, Monsieur de Merit, did you ever, did, did not buy some crucifix for the Spaniards? Passed through the town? No, Monsieur, very good, thank you, he said, flashing in the tiger's lair at his wife. Jean, he added, turning to his confidential valet, you could serve my meals here, Madame Moritz's room. She is ill, I shall not leave her. Two few covers. The poor man remained in my room for twenty days, during the entire early time, when there was some little noise in the closet, and Josephine went to the seed. For the dying man, he said, without allowing her to utter a word, he saw on the cross that there was no one there. After the story, all the ladies rose from the table. Thus the spell and the witch Bellacombe had held them with broken. But there were some among them who had already shivered at the last words.